Welcome, or welcome back. You found the Baby Boomer Nostalgia Podcast Project named The Primrose Chronicles, and I'm glad you've joined us. Who am I? I'm a self-described septuagenarian curmudgeon by the name of Marty Young, who writes, narrates, and hosts this weekly endeavor, all with the goal of connecting an audience of listeners with events and characters of the northeast side of Indianapolis, circa 1955 to 65. And why Primrose? Well, that's the street name of the avenue on which my family lived and around which most of these tales center. Before I go too much further today, I want to thank two recent guests who did an amazing job in episodes 204 and 205, telling the Chronicles from another viewpoint. I'll leave to you, the listener, to check out Jack Hogan's offering on the Broderpool Basketball Tournament run of 1963 and my daughter Jessica Paris's retrospective on how TPC came into being. Respectively, the installments are entitled Hoosier Hysteria Turns Orange and Black and The Muse of the Primrose Chronicles. Just in their short time since dropping, they have offered two of the most favorite storylines I've recorded thus far. I'm grateful to both, and I'm certain you'll find each a special endeavor if you haven't caught their comments already. And that brings us back to this second season offering, the final chapter in the Automobile Trilogy that I began before the back-to-back interviews. I've entitled it, For Reasons That Will Soon Become Self-Evident, To All the Cars I Crashed Before. You need not have downloaded the first two segments to all the cars I loved before and it almost didn't happen to appreciate this one, but both are standalone entertainment. Further, if you followed earlier posts of the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page advertising this episode, you originally saw the title as To All the Cars I Wrecked Before. Since then, that verb has been changed to crashed because of one faithful listener from the old neighborhood who noted all your cars were wrecks, but to your credit, you didn't crash them all. Now, that's a small observation, but it was enough to warrant a change in the title, if not in some of the content. With that acknowledged, I invite you to ride along with me today. Maybe shotgun, without seatbelts, and certainly no safety helmets on one of the three rides in motor cars that gained for me my reputation, nickname, and anticipated future. In my defense, over a period of about a year and a half after securing my driver's license, even as I traversed the streets and avenues of the north side of Indianapolis in the employ of Jack's two-year-door pizza, I did so without so much as a ticket, much less an accident. I did unwillingly participate in a trio of collisions, twice as the driver and once as the passenger, condemning all three cars to scrap metal, but none resulting in serious injury for any involved. Again, God looks after fools and children. Their frequency, though, resulted in cautious inquiries from wary parents who asked their kids, who were my teen buddies and girlfriends, as they left the homes for an evening. Marty's not driving, is he? The growing awareness of those crashes also gained for me the unwanted moniker Clyde Crash Cup. And once my antics echoed locker to locker across the lunch tables and through the halls of Broderpool in my senior year, it became anticipated in the written class prophecy that I was destined to be the owner of my own junkyard adjacent to a figure eight racetrack that also hosted regular demolition derbies. Of course, None of that even remotely came to pass, 
But at the time, many thought that was one of the predictions about a class of 1965 alum that would most likely be celebrated at future reunions. I guess you might say I had become mildly notorious. The story that follows, if representative of other exploits, may suggest it was for a good reason. In my defense, limited as it might be, I never had the desire to be labeled an automotive daredevil. It was more about circumstances and maybe being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but things did result in accidents. In this episode, I merely offer one of several tales, allowing it to stand in tribute to several others that may be told in future months. So let me relate the events surrounding my putting the family car, the 1954 Mercury station wagon, into the totaled category. Then you can determine if the things said about me and my driving habits are indeed valid. I have no idea what I was doing up that Saturday morning. I had delivered pizzas the night before until after midnight, arriving home to share an unclaimed pepperoni and sausage pizza with Dad, who, with Mom already in bed, had settled into his recliner to watch a John Wayne movie and awake my safe arrival. I can't definitively say that was the agenda of the previous night, but it happened often enough that I'm going to claim literary license and declare that was the case. Those times were special, just Dad and I. So I'll drop it in for no good reason, but only to fondly recall them myself. Anyway, I was up early the next morning. The why to that, I cannot say, but none of my brothers or sisters were up yet, only mom and dad, at the kitchen table, drinking their first cups of coffee, reading their favorite sections of the newspaper, and commenting aloud their findings and reactions. I walked in went to the refrigerator, and just as I opened the door to remove a gallon bottle of my AM beverage of choice, ice-cold whole milk, which wasn't there, Mom said the obvious, we're out of milk. You'll need to run over to the market and get a couple of gallons to get us through the weekend. You can take the station wagon and leave it on the street when you get back. Now, a lot of varying thoughts ran through my head. Did I really want milk? Was this more than a statement from mom, or rather a veiled suggestion, that I ought to meet a need that I not only had created in part, but would benefit from in the near future? And then, well, what did I have to lose? At any rate, feeling unusually compliant for a teen, I said, okay, grab the ignition key and head it out. The route was a familiar one. With me being the last young with a car arriving home the previous night and pulling in behind the said Mercury in the drive, I would back the wagon into the Klein side of the driveway, back down past my Plymouth to the street, where I'd head north on Primrose toward 46th. At that stop sign, I would turn left and head west all the way over to College Avenue, where the full-service grocery store 7-Eleven, not to be confused with the later, open 24 hours, 365 days a year, possibly with gas pumps, on every other corner convenience store that we've become so familiar with today. No, this 7-Eleven, the grocery, was so named because, yeah, that's right, it was open from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. It was not quite the supermarket like Marsh up on 52nd Keystone, but it was about the same distance from our house. And Mom always of necessity the thrifty shopper, knew the College Avenue establishment had cheaper milk. As I recall, 
usually three gallons in glass jugs for $5 with a return of the empty and rinse bottles. With a coupon, it could even be four gallons for $5. Now that may seem like a lot, and in fact it was, but it was a volume of the beverage that would certainly not go bad in a fridge being frequented by four growing boys and a girl who believed a glass or two a day was beneficial to a creamy complexion. As long as the door was shut tight against the summer heat. (laughs) Funny how I easily get off track. Get back to the story. I left the store, climbed back into the family wagon, placed the multiple jugs on the front bench seat next to me, and upon starting the car, shifted the automatic transmission into reverse and exiting the parking lot, moving the gear shift down into drive, I headed home. Back east across 46, but this time passing Primrose to Ralston, planning on turning there, heading down to 44th, right around the bend, and parking at the curb, not wanting to navigate my vehicle back into the space on our driveway one more time. As I began that trek, I also began fiddling with the AM radio in the dash. I considered myself by this time a connoisseur of fine contemporary music and often chose not to listen to songs or artists I did not enjoy, quickly changing the station from WIBC to WIFE or vice versa. One of my first purchases and installs in my own 48 Plymouth, a necessity I felt I deserved, was a new AM radio with speakers, that radio having four push buttons used for setting and then instantly locating favorite radio stations. In other words, number one, wife, number two, Wibsy, etc. So an easy move from one to the other could almost be done without my eyes leaving the road. The Mercury, though slightly newer, still had a radio with two knobs, one for volume, one for manually changing from one frequency to another often necessitating a visual guidance of the red bar across the dial between at least 1070 and 1300. But I was not beneath such a challenge and negotiated several times a station change coming and going to the market that AM. However, the challenge produced a disastrous result as I turned right onto Ralston during the return trip. One other difference between my Plymouth and the family wagon I now drove was how it steered. In 1948, vehicles were turned and maneuvered all based on the strength of the driver, almost literally cranking the oversized steering wheel with hand-over-hand motions around a corner or curve. Oh, power steering had been around since the 1930s as a luxury feature on the high-end models, but it did not become standard until the early 1950s. Thus, our 1954 Mercury, though archaic by modern 1964 criteria, had a belt and pulley and hydraulic steering system that could be turned with one hand even while resting the other arm out the open window. For me, however, that feature only contributed to the events immediately ahead. I was multitasking. Safety advisors would say I was a distracted driver and they probably would be closer to the truth. As I turned the corner, I was in the middle of a radio station change. Probably some Elvis standard had begun to play, and I was looking for a Beach Boys surf or car tune, twisting the knob and eyeing that red bar as it traveled across the dial. I held my line with the steering wheel, a big arching turn it would have been with my large Plymouth ring, 
when in fact, I was driving the Mercury with a much smaller diameter steering wheel. I hope you can picture that. What it resulted in was my oversteering across a course I was not even watching, feeling more or less, although inaccurately, my anticipated path south. So, a hand on the radio dial, hand loosely turning the steering wheel, eyes off the road, accelerating too much and too quickly, not accounting for the V8 engine versus my Plymouth Flathead 6. Combined, those produced a perfect storm with disastrous results. Instead of the wheel straightening to proceed down the residential avenue without my visual recognition or correction, but with an acceptable song playing on the car radio, the Mercury jumped the curb, blasted through a white picket fence, ended up with its front bumper and grill assembly slammed into a large sturdy maple in the center of the front yard at 4537 Ralston. As the car came to an abrupt conclusion of its, till then, rather pedestrian travels, my eyes returned to the scene that I'd been ignoring in my quest for quality music. But I could see nothing. It was as if a film covered my eyes. For a moment, I panicked over my physical well-being. It seemed I had been blinded by the impact. At the very least, my sight was seriously impaired. And then the film began to drip down off the windshield. What had in fact happened was that the milk jugs, remember in those days they were glass, had become projectiles flying about the car's interior, the result of sudden impact. Several had been violently tossed to the floorboard below the bench seat and hitting together with a force that broke all the bottles, flooding that area between the door and the raised transmission hump with cow juice. A third bottle had taken a direct trajectory. The car's front end had struck the tree smack dab in the center of its front grille, and that milk jug was launched from the seat up over the dashboard and against the windshield, shattering and throwing milk from one side of the front window to the other. It was that opaque distortion my eyes first caught. My vision was in fact undamaged. A further assessment of my body did reveal minor injuries, however. My right knee had been pushed violently into the volume knob of the dash radio. A semicircular gash was the result that bled profusely for a time and required bandaging. Shortly after that discovery, I sensed the taste of blood and realized that I must have struck my mouth on the steering wheel and had put one of my teeth clear through my lower lip. Now, this assessment took much less time than it has taken me to describe it. Folks of the block later said that the crash sounded like an explosion, although nothing actually ignited. It was heard several doors down at my buddy Strainy's house, and while it was Saturday morning and he slept through all the excitement, his mom, Nina, was there among the onlookers, realized it was me, and hurried home to call my folks. The homeowner's house whose fence I had plowed through and tree I had struck, were now also front and center. Having called the police and the ambulance, unsure of neither the vehicle or the driver that now rested in their front yard, mere feet from their front door. I had created the most excitement the sleepy little neighborhood had seen in a long time, whether I liked it or not and I would be known for quite some while as the kid who took out a fence, totaled his father's car, 
rather than my given name. Dad arrived in my Plymouth about the same time as the police and the ambulance. A quick check of my injuries and the medical first responders were then on their way, putting a quick bandage on my knee wound, determining that my lip would not require stitches, and telling Dad to not let me sleep for the next 12 hours and watch for any strange or unusual behavior. The crowd laughed as he said, How will I know? He's a teenager. Likewise, the police would soon be on their way. A tow truck was summoned. Dad exchanged post-accident insurance policy numbers with the homeowners and proceeded to collect family treasures from within the car, which had not been damaged by milk. A couple of jackets, a car seat, library books, and the like were rescued. Once the truck arrived, it quickly hooked the mercury up, lifted the rear wheels off the ground, and pulled it away from the tree, back through the now gaping hole in the fence, across the portion of the driveway, and to the salvage yard, where Dad had instructed delivery. I sadly watched as Mom's vehicle, dripping milk from the interior floorboard, moved backwards down the street to a location unknown to me. It would sit there in anticipation of any recovery or transport to a repair shop. There would be none. In my youthful naivety, there were moments following the accident that I thought I'd perhaps done my family a favor. Dad had dutifully called our longtime State Farm Insurance agent, Bill Anderson, a family member and a fellow deacon like Dad, and I assumed that like a good neighbor, State Farm would be there. Settling with the Ralston family, replacing the fence, maybe throwing down grass seed where my tires might have torn up the lawn, and if necessary, apply some type of bark repair ointment so the maple would be none the worse for wear as a result. And to these points, they did. Well, actually, the fence never got repaired and was, in fact, totally removed by the end of the summer. No new lawn was seeded, and the scars on the tree trunk left from the grill and bumper, just like the scars on my knees and lip, remained evident for years. Dad said State Farm had paid them all right. They just chose to use the money on other things, and that was up to them. Now, my confusion came when the matter of our family car became a topic of conversation. I mentioned that maybe we could just get a newer car with a portion of the insurance money that we got. So, apart from a few gallons of milk loss, it looked like a win-win. I'll never forget my dad's incredulous look. Is that the way you think insurance works? Before I could even answer, he began explaining the finer points of insurance coverage, the difference between liability coverage that we had and took care of most of the Ralston damage, and collision comprehensive coverage that we did not have, and thus meant Mom's car, her connection with freedom, escape from the neighborhood, albeit with kids in tow, her means of securing the family groceries, her taxi for school children pickup was gone, until Dad could figure out a way to get another set of wheels all at his own expense. Until then, Dad said, I will be driving your Plymouth to the substation. Mom would be packing four kids into his car. I don't remember its maker model. And if I wanted to go anywhere socially, I would have to hitch a ride from a friend, go back to public transit, or hoof it. My trusty bike was not an option. 
Like everything else in a multi-child home, if something wasn't used or had become outgrown, it was handed down. My Schwinn was now Dave's, and my little brother had two more wheels than I did presently. And my father was not done with the lesson. That wreck would probably increase our monthly policy premium. The other unanticipated result, I had to call Jack at the pizza shop and say I was on the shelf for a while and didn't know how long, and that would put him in a bind as well. Now eventually, Dad found another station wagon, a newer, larger 1959 Dodge Sierra 9-passenger model. I went back to delivering pizza, now with an understanding that I was in a position to pay for the increase in that insurance premium. I was also wiser and smarter about how there were consequences to everything, and a lot of what I didn't know, like how insurance operated, could hurt me. As I said in the beginning, this singular tale is a mere tribute to the few but significant other crashes that I experienced before I left for college. There was the collision in the rain on our way down to the WIFE window on the world on Meridian, and that wasn't my fault. There was the event surrounding the North River Road Grand Prix, the safe outcome of which can only be accredited to guardian angels. And I wasn't even driving in that one. And then came the time just after those primrose years when I spun on an icy bridge in Kentucky returning home from school in Tennessee for Christmas break with a carload of student commuters. In that one, I did a 720 while sliding from one side to the other of the bridge, basically in a straight line, hitting neither side's guardrails or concrete embutments on the span. Again, what heavenly force kept us away from serious harm, I can only give the good Lord thanks for. These are possibly for later recounting, we'll see, but for now, I'll put a lid on my car stories and move on. Next week... The topic surrounds teachers and staff of Broderpool High School, and that could go for a couple of weeks. They all remain in my memory, maybe not fully accurately, but they're stuck there nonetheless, either because of their name, physical features, teaching styles, classroom incidents, or a combination thereof. Should make for a rowdy and possibly even irreverent collection of anecdotes. In preparation, you might flip through a yearbook of two of your own, especially the faculty pages, because I'm sure you have your own recollections. And let's compare. Until next time, sing your favorite 60s car song a couple of times, raise a toast to those unforgettable first sets of wheels that got you around when you were bugged driving up and down that same old strip. There, I offer you your next earworm. I'm afraid it's mine now. Uh, That refers to episode 19 in the last season for you TPC newbies. And consider these past few moments a warning to keep both hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road, your milk in plastic containers. And lastly, let Siri select your playlist. Who knows what distracted teen driver might be coming the other direction on Primrose Lane, or Primrose Avenue. Blessings. Blessings.